This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Hello and welcome to John Richardson and the Future Notes, Series 5, Episode 9, New Ground to be covered this week, all very exciting, but the thing that always stays the same is the presence of Ed Gillespie. Hello. And Mark Stevenson. Does it always stay the same? I think so, we haven't done a show without you. And you say new ground to be covered, are you talking about the big hole in your driveway? Uh, Yeah, well that is true, there is a big (laughs) hole, there's a big hole in my uh, driveway. Uh, lots of men have been peering in my hole this week. <laughs> Some of them were sick. Um, then there was a bit of leakage from the hole. Um, How can it start this early in the show? How can it be this early in? How can you turn basically which is works on a road surface into a filthy piece of potty mouth nonsense? I, I, I was only ever talking about the work to my roadway. I don't know what I don't know where your mind went. But all I, I was very matter-of-factly stating that some men came and smashed a hole um, in my front driveway, which started to leak. And then some other men are going to come and fill me in this week. Yeah, and how's the hole round the back? <laughs> the hole round the back has been filled in. That, right, that okay. was a well bit. But they, it turns out they didn't need to um, drill the hole round the back. They just did that for fun. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> uh, smashed all around their back thinking they might find something they liked but they didn't so they just filled it back in again and then they went back around the front and they had a lot they had a lot more fun around the front oh, it's amazing is it some people's lives are literally digging holes and then filling them in again mm. yes it's amazing circularity it feels like this podcast to me <laughs> digging <laughs> holes and then trying to fill them in <laughs> I'll let you into a little bit of showbiz gossip because I know that's what people like. But on Have I Got News For You, you always have to test your mic and Paul Merton tells the same joke every time. It always gets a laugh. Uh, Two men from the council, um, one's digging a hole and the other's filling it in. And someone walks past and says, why are you doing that? And they say, well, the guy who plants the trees is off sick. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good joke. Classic. Um, Um, Ed? Can I tell you a joke? Yes, please. So uh, my beloved Caroline has told me to stop doing flamingo impressions, so I've had to put my foot down. Oh, lovely. Do you know, I saw one on the internet this week that very rarely works, but I tried it on my daughter and it worked, and I'm very excited to try it on them. So let's pretend I haven't told you that this is a skit, right? Pretend we're just chatting away. Uh, Hey, Ed. Hi. Uh, They've all been saying that you sound like an owl. Who? (laughs) That's a bit of fun, isn't it? <laughs> oh. Maybe we should do a comedy podcast. Maybe we should stop all this trying to make the future better shit. Just tell well, some gags, leave people to it. That'll upset Martin. Remember what he said last week, that we had erred towards... Oh, too much comedy. Oh, no. Well, so we can see remedy that. <laughs> I don't think Martin's made it this far. Me talking about having my hole filled in and then some old school gags. Should we talk about the future of your behaviour on the road, Ed? 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, only, I'm only just recovering from norovirus. I've had that particular joy this week. Have you? Thoroughly unpleasant, yeah. Mm. Uh, I got it off my daughter, you know, when you're kind of changing her bed sheets for the second or third time after mm. she's vommed in her bed and thinking, I'm next. I'm definitely getting this because mm. it's massively contagious. So that was a joy. It's lovely the winter, isn't it? Yeah. When it's all cold and dark and wet and you don't want to go out, and then when you stay in, you end up puking and shitting everywhere because of all the viruses. It's a real treat this time yeah. of year. Yeah, so I thought I'd mix it up, you know, and uh, do a speed awareness course, you know, just to kind of get a bit of extra titillation in my life. When you said you, you were mixing it up and you just thought you'd do it, in my experience, usually people do speed awareness courses because they have been compelled to. They don't just think of it as a, as a distraction from well, the everyday. I, I know. I didn't have much option, did I? After that insurance debacle where I got six points on my license, I, having, <laughs> having then got done for doing 35 and a 30, which was very naughty, and I held my hand up as culpable. Um, hand back on the wheel. Hand back on the wheel. Have you learned yeah. nothing? <laughs> <laughs> it's not 10-2. Ten to two, mate. Both hands. So I had to accept the speed awareness course. So I'm going to be spending three hours this afternoon doing my my virtual training on how to gauge the appropriate speed for the right setting. You'll learn quite a lot of interesting things about um, about braking distances and miles per hour. Oh, you've done one, have you? You've had an awareness course. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that you, <laughs> you, you, will, you will learn some interesting things about braking distances and, and miles per hour. That's all I'm saying. I, I'm not going to c- confirm one way or the other whether I had been caught doing 23 in a 20 zone and was forced to Ooh. do a speed awareness course, which seemed a little bit excessive, but there you go. It might have, might have seemed excessive. It might have seemed excessive, I wasn't. That was my favourite part of the uh, COVID inquiry this week was when they were quoting Boris Johnson's notes whilst we were looking at the notes that he'd written. And he used the phrase, if indeed I did say that. I'm literally fucking looking at it. Yeah. And he still has the bravado to say, well, I mean, you say I said that. <laughs> Where's the evidence? <laughs> On telly. <laughs> Here, right in front of us. Yeah, I know. That is the definition of chutzpah, isn't it? Mm. Absolutely unbelievable. Well, I think the interesting thing is when you watch him, what's really interesting about those peeps is that you can see that he has re-edited the reality in his own head, as we all do to a certain extent, but he firmly believes now that the story he's telling is what he was thinking at the time. Yes. And, and therefore it comes across as quite sort of like, oh, okay, well, he really believes this, so this is quite compelling in some ways. And then you kind of go, oh, my God, your grasp on reality is so self-serving that you will change it in your own head and believe that you actually said and thought these things at the time when it was very clear from your actions that you didn't give a fucking fuck. I wondered if he knew the minute he had to swear an oath, I thought, well, I, I technically he's lying already. I mean, he's saying, I swear to tell the truth. I think in full knowledge that he's not going to. So within about three seconds of opening his mouth, he'd already lied. Yeah, but the thing is, he thought he was telling the truth. That's the thing about the, 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 yeah. these kind of sort of sort of sociopathic individuals. Is they absolutely believe that what they're saying is the truth. And in the moment, they do. It's one of the things that makes them so charming, because when they focus their attention on you and they tell you a compliment, they firmly believe that they really like you and they're doing that rather than trying to manipulate you. It's just fascinating, this kind of yeah. mad personality type. There's a brilliant book by the evolutionary biologist uh, Robert Trivers called Deceit, um, How We Lie to Ourselves in Order to Deceive Others, mm. uh, which is a rollicking great read. Uh, he's a pretty interesting character himself. But um, yeah, if you want to dig into that yeah. self-deception and delusion and how it can also come across as compelling to others. Interesting fact about him, his name's not even Robert Trivers. It's just what he's been telling himself. 
<laughs> Robert Livers. So the, the exciting new ground that I uh, teased you with on the way in was that we we will be delving deep into a topic that a few people have asked about, not just an email, but it's one thing to get asked about um, speaking to people about the future, especially as a vegan. So this week we are going to discuss the future of pets and pet ownership, and we will be joined by our first ever, not AI-generated, but listener-generated expert. Wow. We've delved into the skills of our listenership. We've basically, this is us really handing it over, isn't it? This is us ceding control of the podcast and basically now saying, you lot do it if you're so clever. (laughs) (laughs) I I think it demonstrates inclusivity, you know, a sense of the importance of diversity of perspectives. Yeah, that's true. You know, that the podcast can be a collaborative, uh, you know, venture where we bring in greater experts than ourselves. I think it's quite humbling. And, And crucially, you can get listeners for free. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> well it makes a change because I mean, basically all we had to do was read jen's email didn't we uh because you know usually the email inbox is full of pr people trying to promote specific folk and try and get them onto the podcast and we don't tend to invite those people we never have um, in fact no exactly uh but so jen wrote such a lovely email i was like actually we've been talking about the future of pets for a while so let's do it yeah Actually, there was that guy we did invite on. Uh, I got, which uh, got approached by their PR. Um, it was uh, what was it? Uh, I represent a Mr. Ed Gillespie who's written a book about slow travel. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you believe I've ever had a PR agent, then uh, they're clearly not. You're, you're you're deluding yourself. I think Jen might be trying to get in. I can look at somebody who's hovering in the doorway of the uh, recording suite and then leaving again. So it's with great pleasure to introduce two special guests today. We have Jen Gale. Jen worked as a small animal vet for 10 years. Uh, She spent a whole year buying nothing new, which is probably a whole other podcast episode, which led her to found Sustainable-ish, which is www.sustainablelife.co.uk, which is an online platform podcast all about imperfect eco-action. So it sounds rather like us, Jen. So you're amongst birds of a feather. (laughs) She's the author of the Sustainable-ish Living Guide and the Sustainable-ish Guide to Green Parenting. And she also runs carbon literacy for the veterinary profession uh, with Vet Sustain. And alongside Jen's brilliance, we have Justine Shotton. And Justine is Jen's choice of double act partner uh, in her introductory email for today. Uh, Justine is former president of the British Veterinary Association, uh, where she held her presidency under the theme of environmental sustainability. And she's now head vet for wildlife and exotics at the RSPCA, as well as being at the blonde photographer vet on Instagram. So we have two brilliant, bubbling, bright eyed experts to take us on a journey into the future of pets. So ladies, welcome to the show. How fucked are we? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> pretty fucked i think justine would you agree yeah it, it's not looking great at the moment unfortunately for pets to do some sort of figures facts and figures do we know how many pets we have how many people have pets how many there are how many of them we have to cull by the end of the show <laughs> <laughs> that the ultimate goal by the end of the show <laughs> basically if there isn't a murderous rampage of people instantly going and murdering their pets within a half an hour then we failed surely oh blimey let's let's go for that um <laughs> Recent study I was reading was saying 22 million cats and dogs uh, wow. in the UK and anywhere between sort of 50 and 60% of households in the UK owning a pet of some sort. So 
you know, very much in the uh, minority if you're not a pet owner, I would imagine. Wow. Well, that's amazing. So it's a huge number. Oh, it's also, there's a lot more smaller pets as well, isn't there? As well as the sort of the big stuff like dogs and cats, there's been a 50% rise in the number of smaller pets. So all those rabbits and guinea pigs and hamsters and gerbils, there's now 5 million of those, which is up 1.7 million on last year. So a lot more rodentia and small <laughs> stuff. Can I, can I, uh, why? I don't know. Well, I'd say I'm, we've just acquired a hamster, so maybe I'm part of the problem here. But I think I mentioned Jimmy on the show. I mean, I did that because I wanted to get a small animal for, for my daughter. Although I've just realised that hamsters do exactly what hamsters you would expect them to do. I thought he was eating a lot, and I realised he just filled his house with all the food I've been giving him. So when I went to clean him out, it was like half the house was full of bedding, and the other half was literally all the food I'd given him over the previous week. I mean, I would, I would imagine the perception is that it's going to be less work, less hassle, less expense if you go for a smaller pet. Um, however, a lot of those species that you've just mentioned aren't particularly ideally suited to being children's pets and therefore can of themselves create problems. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. I mean, and also they have different, you know, needs that we might not realise, like rabbits should never be kept on their own. And I think so many rabbits in this country are on their own. And then some of the other pets like reptiles, for example, might actually have quite significant energy costs and, and sort of keeping costs associated with them that people just don't think about. And the lifespans, for example, tortoises, you know, they can live up to 100 years in some species. So, yeah, I think people think, oh, this might be the easy option. I don't have to take it for a walk every day. But sadly, that's not the case. Yeah, tortoise is really like an intergenerational pet, isn't it? Yeah. yeah we've got one. She's 83, I think, our tortoise. Wow. 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 And who did, where did you acquire her from? So it was when I was still in practice and somebody brought in a tortoise that had been attacked by a dog um, for treatment. And luckily, it had been to a proper exotic specialist vet beforehand. And I literally just had to do as I was told. Yeah. And I was like, oh, we quite fancy a tortoise. And they went, oh, we know someone who's who's looking to rehome one. And this was an older couple, but they'd inherited it from his grandma, I think, who'd had it wow. like from during, during the war. Um, so yeah, she's got a tale to tell if she could speak. I've got to say, that's a very unambitious dog. If he's going to attack something, going after an 83-year-old tortoise is kind of like, that's, that's low-hanging fruit, isn't it? <laughs> but the thing is, a lot of people are giving up their pets, aren't they? I mean, I think this is the issue in, in partly of how we're fucked, isn't it? About about 13% of households, which is like 3.7 million, given the numbers we were just discussing, admit to having relinquished a pet in 2022. And that includes like a third of young pet owners, which is awful, isn't it? If people actually, if this large number of folk are giving up pets what's happening to those uh, abandoned animals yeah i think the rescue centers are, are pretty swamped and that will be due to a cost of living crisis but also i guess people getting pets during the pandemic when perhaps they were working from home and then now the push is to get people back into the offices and things and maybe realizing that their lifestyle is no longer quite so compatible with uh you know being home for a dog and that sort of thing and um yeah it's a real i mean you must see it justine i know it's not quite your 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 field with the RSPCA but in terms of numbers of animals that are that are being rehomed. Yeah absolutely I mean sadly the, the rehoming centres are rammed full and I think like you said Jen just lots of people are not really realising the long-term commitment and costs of pet ownership mm. and you know they think oh 
it, oh, maybe we can just get a puppy, you know, it'd be great for the family or, or one more cat wouldn't make a difference, etc. And then actually, you know, a year or two down the line, they can't cope with the, the vet costs, which, you know, are not insignificant. They can't keep up with preventative health um, and behavior. So a lot of these pandemic puppies didn't get the sort of socialization that they needed during that time. And we're seeing a lot of behavior problems in dogs leading to them being relinquished as well, which is just so sad for the families and the dogs. Now, I think I can solve this one. to the one you had 10 minutes ago yeah mark is obviously our most experienced animal communicator animal lover and (laughs) deeply in contact with nature well i've I've thought which is you know we've got a cost of living crisis people you know are struggling to make i can see where this is going already where's it going john well i think are you implying that people can't afford to feed themselves and they have animals in their house that they don't want yeah I think, I mean, it's not a difficult option, is it? I mean, you know. <laughs> Have you ever had a pet, Mark? Uh, yes, but yeah. um, um, and they were delicious. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I also thought, was thinking when you were talking about sort of these these, these pandemic puppies that, you know, uh, that people have taken on, I, I sometimes think that John feels that with his podcast because we started that in the pandemic. He took, <laughs> he took on these two pets called Mark and now he can't get rid of them. That's the, uh, five series in. And he's vegan, so he's not going to eat you, so you'll be all right. No, <laughs> no I, mean, I mean, to be fair, they, they have proposed eating feral cats in Australia, haven't they? Um, and I know there's been some, an environmental movement out there. And we got something like a quarter of a million feral cats in the UK mm. uh, and about 42,000 dogs. It also reminds me of what my uh, old friend Giles used to say. He goes, a dog is for life, not just for Christmas, uh, unless you're in South Korea, in which case, bon appetit. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, to be fair to South Korea, they are about to ban uh, dog meat consumption. Right. The pandemic's getting a lot of... Um, sort of reference in terms of the reason for this is it purely the pandemic or have the numbers been going up anyway as we get sort of more distanced from animals and wildlife in general in our lives or is it down to instagram and seven second videos of little dogs nestling their noses between your fingers and people just <laughs> don't, there's no instagram account that is here's my dog having a shit here's me driving my dog to the vet at 11 o'clock at night because he's just eating a bag of chocolate buttons <laughs> there you go john maybe there should be well i think there definitely should be <laughs> i think there needs to be a realistic pet ownership instagram account i, I don't know about how much social media has contributed to a rise in in general pet numbers but I think it's definitely contributed to the rise in different types of breeds and the sort of fashionability of different breeds so one of the big issues um, now with regards to sort of health and welfare of lots of dogs is their breed and lots of um, the technical term is brachycephalic but uh I think the the term we probably all appreciate, like squashed face dogs, like they're really, really dogs. popular, really popular. Um, so, you know, even 10 years ago when I was in practice, they weren't popular and now they're just super popular. What and, is the appeal? Um, what is the appeal? Why do, why do people love a dog with a squashed face? I think it's the big eyes, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. They've looked at this sort of from a social science perspective and apparently the sort of round faces, big eyes, it's what humans are drawn to. And that's why we think things like seal pups are cuter than rats pups or whatever you know so it's it, there's a lot of research behind it but but people know that these dogs have issues and they'd still go out and buy one again um mm. and sort of linking up with the sustainability angle you know when you're 
getting an animal and breeding animals that you know you're going to have to sort of put a lot of resource into fixing just so it can breathe, for example, operations or correcting their eyes, etc. You know, that has a massive carbon impact that really is a kind of bonkers thing that we're doing. Mm, that's before we start grooming them. I mean, American comedian Rita Rudner said, she goes, I wonder if other dogs think poodles are members of a weird religious cult. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, let's get into this because, you know, th- there are many, many sort of mental health benefits to having a pet for, for lots of people. So oh. I don't think we're going to get pick at that at all. And I wouldn't want anybody listening to this to think we were criticising the sometimes very special and indeed therapeutic relationship that people can have with their their pets but there's no getting away from the fact that that the environmental impact is is pretty horrific is it not it it really is and i think yes we have to recognize the massive benefit that pets give to us but we also have to make sure that we're giving you know a lot of thought to what our pets want and how to enrich their lives um and generally speaking the things that are better for the planet are not only good because they save us money, but also it gives our pets, you know, the, the better life, the, the life that they leave. It's a happier life. Mm. So I think, you know, switching things around and not thinking, oh, let's just buy our pet a fancy Halloween costume or Christmas costume <laughs> or birthday costume. You know, what would my dog actually want is a long walk in the park, you know, and simple things like that. It's free. It's easy. Your dog loves it. We have this weird consumer attitude from you know everything that's bombarding us on social media and, and other formats that think oh, our pets must want what we want um, <laughs> and it's just not the case it's absolutely bonkers isn't it because i mean that has gone absolutely stratospheric i was i was reading that the pet care accessory market has grown by 66 percent in the past 10 years and that's about 70 pounds per person in the uk you know it's absolutely huge amount of money that we mm. spend on all of these accessories which are a cipher for the love or a kind of compensation for the guilt we feel about not giving our pets the attention they deserve. And, and actually, it's, they're almost like a mirror to us in that, you know, for instance, I read this staggering statistic, the half of UK dogs and cats are obese. Yeah. Because, you know, we, you know, we, they have, now, now they have a, an obesogenic environment where we make them sedentary and then feed them the wrong foods and all that kind of stuff. And it's just like, they're like this little mirror of us that we've, you know, and it, and it seems very, very, very sort of dystopian. And in terms of the, you know, the carbon impact, the the biggest chunk of your pet's paw print, if you want to call it that, will will come from its diet if you've got a dog or a cat um, and will be the meat that's from its diet. And because of this sort of increasing, I guess, humanization of, of pets, the, um, you know, the real premium brand, brands, you know, with the organic meat and the best quality this and that feeding you know all pet food has to be human grade uh, ingredients but feeding that real sort of premium stuff that we would maybe choose to put on our own plates in another form you know that has has really driven that as well but a bonkers stat that i read was that just for the the dry food that is fed to dogs in the world needs a land mass uh, equivalent to two times the size of the uk and that's just for dry food that's not including wet food so mm. um you know if you're looking to reduce the carbon impact of certainly of your dog, then looking at alternative diets can be a really effective way of doing that. Because that's the really shocking thing, isn't it? If like if, if pets are eating about 20% of all the meat and fish that is um, harvested in the world, you know, and, and actually a country made up of just cats and dogs would rank about fifth in the world for meat consumption. Wow. Uh, and, you know, and Eric Asadurian, uh, one of the analysts in this space, said actually two German shepherds use more resources just for their annual food needs than the average Bangladeshi uses each year in total so this is the thing is like 
what we're feeding our dogs matters, not just, you know, the amount of calories, but also where they're coming from and the size of the dogs we have, don't they? I mean, dogs are omnivores. They can eat vegetarian half the time, can't they? Yeah, Justine, I think the BVA had got a working group on this very thing at the moment, haven't they? Yeah, exactly. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of scope for future opportunity in round pet food in particular, also for our own food. But there's some really exciting work going on around things like cell cultured meat. So that is growing actual meat from animal cells, i.e. from an egg to start with into chicken cells, for example. And that results in a kind of chicken sludge. And it is still chicken. And, (laughs) you know, we can have a whole debate about whether or not that's an ethical thing to do. But it takes the the farm animal out of the equation. And, you know, longer term, once that's scaled up, will be hugely more sustainable and obviously better for animal welfare without the uh, risks around uh, maybe not feeding meat protein, which is important in some species like cats because they are carnivores and they need to have certain aspects that are in meat in their diet. So things like that, really interesting. Things like, you know, insect protein, how that will look like in the future for our pet food. There's already a few on the market. And yeah, vegetarian and vegan food and and looking at those sorts of ingredients, particularly for dogs, could be a, a really good way forward too to reduce that meat impact too. The insect diets, I think, can reduce the carbon footprint for for dogs by sort of 90% plus like it's absolutely mm. staggering when you when you look into it and my dog's on um insect food and she 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 has no concept of what that is so she's quite happy to just chomp down on her food and not worry about it well, that's what people sort of forget, isn't it? I mean, you know, I was looking at um, Yura, which claims to be yes. like the world's most humane, ethical and sustainable pet food. And obviously, because it's using these black soldier fly larvae as a really high grade source of protein, and they can be cultivated on food waste. So there's yeah. there's no fertilizer, there's no pesticides, there's no water pollution, there's no deforestation, there's no antibiotics. You know, it's actually, it's amazing. And, and if the Dogs and cats love it. I mean, everyone's probably seen a cat catch a moth or, or, or insects around the house. I mean, you know, cats eating spiders is definitely a thing. Yeah, but then cats, I think, are a little bit like children in that they'll go out and catch something revolting and then turn their nose up at this lovely, expensive food that you've just gone and saw. <laughs> John, have you ever had a pet? Well, um, I'm going to completely fess up and put us in the whatever you said, Ed, 3.7 gazillion people who uh, gave a pet away. Um, we got a dog. I listen, far be it from me to paint myself as the guy who knew it was going to be a bad idea, but I lost the argument on getting a family dog a year or two ago, and we got a dog, and it was a bad idea. And I never mentioned that it was a bad idea because I'm a good person. <laughs> you certainly wouldn't do it in a public forum, like on a podcast with like hundreds <laughs> of thousands of That would be horrific. We can bleep the keywords. We can bleep the words great and right from the beginning. <laughs> but no, we uh, got a dog and it now lives with some friends of ours who work from home and live opposite a park and have other animals in their house, which are all the things that I think the dog needed that we couldn't provide. It's difficult when you have children and one of the things i struggle with most is the sort of the very concept of ownership of an animal mm, that, you know mm. my daughter will say she'll watch a youtube video or she'll hear about someone who's got and she'll say i want a and it's in the same way you would say i want an lol surprise you know we'll sometimes say well i'd like a snake or i want a and i hamsters especially it's, it's definitely the words of a, a man now in his 40s who knows a lot more than he did at the time but 
I, you know, once you've seen a picture of a hamster in its natural environment, you know, you've seen an Attenborough five minute video of hamsters running miles and miles and living completely independent lives. Mm. It's insane that for the first 20 years of your life, you just think they're like toys, they're Tamagotchis that live in a cage and you feed them sesame seeds and it's very cute. So I struggle with, yeah, the, the pet owner. We had a dog when I was younger. We fed it tinned meat and didn't exercise it enough. So, you know, I'm definitely a piece of shit. <laughs> I was going to say, this confession could go on. Yeah. <laughs> Did you or Lucy ever describe yourselves as proud parents to your dog? Like, I'm a proud dog daddy or a proud dog mummy? No, I was never proud of the dog. <laughs> <laughs> I would say I was least proud of it when I had a show to get to and I was on my own with the dog and I let it out to do its business and it rolled in a giant pile of fuck shit. <laughs> Oh, when I was already late, that would have been my least proud mother, you know, talking about what you're saying about the pet rejecting the life that you're trying to build for it as a human. But you have a lovely blanket. Why would you choose to locate the one piece of fuck shit in the garden and really get it in there? I mean, really <laughs> deep in there. So listening to all this in terms of like, you know, what we need to do is, is, is the real thing we need to do is, is essentially discourage pet ownership as much as possible you know i'm not saying that you know, there, are, as there are many times where having a pet is brilliant particularly for people living by themselves but in general this whole kind of you have a pet you own a pet you think of it as a as a, as a thing that you know you you have as much as you have a car or sofa is really that the, the basic answer to say don't have a pet unless you really you know this is a really 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 good reason for you to have one it's a kind of planetary indulgence oh it's really difficult isn't it and you know, I, I talk about imperfect eco-action and, and not judging and all those sorts of things. And and we've got a dog, we've got a tortoise. I think as with everything, it comes down to making more thoughtful, more conscious, more deliberate decisions. And so really doing the research, working out what is the financial implication going to be? You know, if, if it's your boat, look at, you know, what is what are the sustainability implications? What's the most sustainable way we can we can keep a pet, we can keep a dog, we can keep a cat? What's the what's the best diet going to be for it, for it and for the planet? Um, you know, and size matters, <laughs> contrary to what some men maybe will say, but like the, the, the bigger the dog, the bigger the impact. Yeah, Mark. <laughs> you always say that. Um, we edit it out of the podcast, but he says it every episode. <laughs> so going for breeds that don't come with loads of genetic health conditions, going for smaller breeds. Cross breeds tend to generally, you know, your, your old fashioned mongrel will tend to generally have fewer health conditions than your overbred pedigree would. Um, all those kinds of things. And just recognizing the fact that you are going to have to put some some work into this to to have that. I remember taking our dog when she was a puppy to puppy training and being like, oh, my God, it's like having a, a baby again mm. um, and saying to the dog trainer, like, when will this end? And she, oh, by, by the time she's about three, she'll be really settled. And I was like, you what? Yeah. But you have to put the time and the work in to get a dog that will just slot in and, and be uh, an easy part of the family. Should pets basically come with a label? Like, you know, you have labeling for food, which says this is much salt and this is much sugar. Should, should you like if a hamster just comes with this, it's going to cost you this much, it's going to cost you this much time, you have to deal with this amount of shit or whatever. And there should be like a labeling system for each animal that makes you stop and think before you take it on. An interesting concept. What do you think, Jesse? <laughs> yeah. 
And they've even um, suggested for certain species having a kind of online test or check, you know, just to get some sort of sense check that, you know, this animal isn't an easy option or just to know the very basics like hamsters are nocturnal. Maybe think about a rat for your child Mm. just because, you know, they're much more interactive in the daytime. But I think, like Jen said, you know, we need to be more realistic with ourselves about the commitment it's going to take and and not necessarily avoid having pets, but just doing it in the most sustainable way. And actually, pet ownership can make us live more sustainably. Mm. So we might not go on those international trips the other side of the world because we've got our puppy to look after, for example. So, you know, it can work both ways and, and dogs can keep us fit and healthy, which has you know less impact on our mm. health and our carbon impact overall. So it's, it's quite nuanced. But I think, you know, getting a healthy pet in the first place and keeping it as healthy as possible that preventive health piece is really, really important and being really mindful about what we're feeding it, what we're buying for it, um, you know, how we're transporting it, all of those things as well. It strikes me that anybody can just go and own a pet. There's no, there's no requirements, no tests. There's no like, you know, do you actually know what you're doing? It's, you know, it, you can literally just go and get a pet tomorrow without any checks or balances. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, when you often, when we, I have those sorts of conversations, you know, people come back and say, well, anyone can just have a child without any of that, which is, you know, a fair point. And I think it is up to us to to take that level of responsibility. And also, you know, not just for the planet, but for that pet's health and welfare. You know, we shouldn't be getting pets because we think that they look cute or cool, or they're going to be great on our social media. If, if we're thinking anything along those lines, you know, just stop and you know, think about something else. Well, what about pet sharing? So what about, you know, reducing the, the commitment? I mean, maybe it's more difficult for a cat, but would, does a dog cope with a bit of shared ownership uh, and an instability or does it constantly feel like it's unsettled and pining for home and the rest of its pack? Um, what's the sort of mental impacts of dog sharing? There's a great, I think probably the most popular website is Borrow My Doggy, isn't it? Where you can, uh, you know, if you don't have a dog, but you'd love to have one, you know, to take out for walks and things, you can be that person who volunteers to to either have people's dogs when they're on holiday or to take them out for walks and and then if you've got a dog that you need walking or uh, someone to look after and I think if it has that I guess it's a bit like co-parenting isn't it if it if it has that very secure relationship with both or with all of the people involved and it's comfortable in all of those environments then I think dogs are pretty like in the moment and pretty um <laughs> uh, you know yeah. they don't they worry too much about the future and things that are going to happen um so that that can potentially but obviously if you were going to go into into any kind of like formal I, I don't want to call it co-parenting because we don't want to, um, but that kind of agreement, you, you, you need to have your boundaries clear, don't you? And everybody be mm. really clear about what's involved and what's not. I'd just like to apologise to all the dogs that do indeed listen to this podcast and are very interested about the future. anxiety. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's very revealing in the fact that, you know, the dog walking industry is now worth about one and a half billion a year. Um, I think there's yeah. something like 80,000 registered dog walkers, professional dog walkers in the UK now, uh, yeah. who, who, again, taking people's pets out for them. Yeah, and I think, you know, there probably are quite a few people in your local area that could really do with some help walking their dogs, you know, because they're elderly or because Mm. they've got a Mm. problem, you know. So it's really worth exploring those opportunities because you could not only have the sort of that dog craving sort of satisfaction that you need to spend the time with the animal, but also massively help someone out and not just add to the problem of the pet ownership and all the sort of impacts that we've talked about. And then it's probably like being a grandparent, isn't it? You just get to do the nice bit and drop it back off again after it's rolled in fox shit and give it back. (laughs) 
Can we talk about poo? Yes, go for it. I mean, like what, what, what obviously there, there's lots of sort of pollution issues. Uh, no one wants to find, you know, dog shit in the kids' playground. And actually that's a lot better these days. Put it in the lake where it should go. Lakes yes. and rivers, right? <laughs> <laughs> Hang it in a bag on the tree. <laughs> but if we've got about 20 million cats and dogs in the UK, that's a lot of poo. What should we be doing with it? Yeah, it's a tricky one as well, because not only do we not want a billion plastic bags for every single poo that's picked up, but also we don't want to leave that poo in the environment. Mm. And that can be because, you know, there are a few, rarely, but a few zoonotic diseases, so diseases that we can pick up, especially in kids, from pet poo. But also farm animals have parasites that cycle through, you know, dog poo, for example. So we don't want it on grazing land. And then there's a sort of another level of complexity around some of the medicines that we give our pets, particularly things like the the wormers and flea treatments and things. And if that's excreted in the poo, that can actually then leach into the environment and have impacts on biodiversity and insects through that route as well. So we do not want to leave it out there, but we just need to be really mindful of how where we're putting it instead. Mm. This reminds me of that great uh, Jerry Seinfeld observation about like why dogs are in fact the leaders of our planet. Because you said, like, you saw two life forms and one did shit and, and another life form came along and picked it up and got shit away. <laughs> Who would you assume was in charge? But with the, like, poo bags, you know, this is a debate that, that kind of goes on and on and on on social media. Like, there, there unfortunately isn't a perfect solution. So mm. there's lots of options for compostable and, air quotes, biodegradable. And actually, those terms are used perhaps when they shouldn't be um mm. and and you know we interpret them as i put that in my compost heap and it disappears nicely and turns into soil and what it actually means is it breaks up into ever smaller tinier tinier pieces of microplastics yeah mm. you know and you will be charged a premium for those products so you know i guess the the greenest thing would be reusing say if you've got the plastic bag from your bread or your apples but there's only going to be a limited number of, of those that you can use oh, i thought you meant reusing as in rinsing out the bag <laughs> <laughs> well, even i draw the line there John. i was very relieved <laughs> where that sentence ended (laughs) wait till it's full yeah a guy in wales who invented like a lamppost that Mm. you could like pick up the poo put it in a thing by the lamppost and it then did something with the poo that powered the lamppost which i thought was absolute genius but it hasn't caught on (laughs) no it it composted i think it was in mulvan it composted down into uh biogas so it was about it was about 10 dog poos for two hours of lighting yeah. So you work out that ratio. I mean, I've also I've also read that you can you can have actually separate it and compost it at home, or even feed it to your worm farm. So if you really love your worms that much, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or I wonder if there's a way because because there's a lot of carbon in there that's been um, ultimately drawn down from the atmosphere. So we could probably biochar the poo and then turn it into a carbon removal technology. So uh... can I flog my dog shit to you? if you see the amount that we we charge for carbon drawdown then uh yeah i think it's quite lucrative jen my dog could be carbon neutral (laughs) when i worked in the zoo which was my previous job we used to kind of compress all of the zoo animal poo and put into bio boiler and um, burn these briquettes that then sort of heated our tropical house so it's definitely possible we could we could figure it out for dogs i reckon yeah you have your own little anaerobic digester in the in the back uh, garden and that would create you know um, bio biogas for you as well there's a market out there isn't there for people who would get a thrill from heating their living room with panda shit or exotic <laughs> animal shit that they bought from a zoo uh, so basically our 
your future vision then of pets is something like you know a world of fewer smaller better loved happier animals yeah would we argue with that (laughs) i think we can can agree with that yeah yeah we have a cat listening um we have a question if that's okay from boots the cat who owns our producer emma Mm -hmm. boots wants to know about house cats and the sort of balance of whether it's cruel to house a cat or whether the sort of risks of life outdoors and the shortened life expectancy because of other animals and traffic and things like that makes it actually the the kinder thing to do. I think it's a really challenging one, but thinking again from the animal's perspective, I mean, I would always think if I was a cat, I'd prefer to go outside and sort of take my chances and doing whatever you can to keep that environment as safe as possible, but giving the cat is, you know, its best life. And and we can also talk about, you know, biodiversity and cats hunting things as well in this, because if you can't keep a cat indoors, you know, it's not going to predate all the, the local mm-hmm. finches and whatever else, but they've actually shown that, even quite simple things like playing with your cat with that sort of predator-prey type behaviour with toys inside for 10, 10 minutes, five minutes even a day will massively reduce that predation behaviour when they go out. So there are things that you can do. But I don't know, from my personal perspective, I would say if I was a cat, I'd want to go out and, you know, take the risks. And what's mm. the vet's position on robo-pets? I mean, obviously, that's uh, <laughs> it's not great for your industry if we all move over to AI or robot pets. But, you know, could that help redress things? I don't know that you'd get... I mean, I, my understanding of AI is incredibly limited, but I just can't imagine how you would get the same interaction connection with a robot than you would with a, you know, a real living, breathing thing. And obviously, we've got all the production and resources that need to go into the actual device and all those sorts of things. I, yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I agree completely. I mean, it is a different relationship. And if people are looking for something just to kind of entertain them, then, you know, maybe some sort of robot is the way forward. But if people want that bond, you know, with a sentient being, it is very different. And they've shown that pet ownership massively reduces things like loneliness. So there's a huge place for that bond that I just think machines can't take the place of. No, I, I totally agree. There's a great quote from the French poet, uh, Anatoly France, who said, until one has loved an animal, a part of one's soul remains unawakened. Absolutely. Well, I love you, Ed. Does that count? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm a complete animal. I was going to say, that says, says a lot about marketing. <laughs> Does that quote end, but caging a bird can fuck right off? I mean, that, I can understand cats and dogs and mice and rats and spiders. Something about putting a bird in a cage. That, yeah. that just needs outlawing, doesn't it? It's like the song lyric, isn't it? I don't know why the cage bird sings. It's like, because it's singing, get me the fuck out of here. <laughs> what is the logic behind bird? Oh, I mean, it strikes me as a real sort of two, three hundred year old. Look at that. It can fly, but not anymore. It, it feels less fashionable now. I think I remember, you know, when I was a kid, our next door neighbours had a couple of budgies in a um in a cage and i think we did the classic like it must have escaped and then went down the pet shop and bought another one and hope they wouldn't notice sort of thing <laughs> i don't remember seeing a huge number in practice and i don't know if there is any data justine do you know if there's anything to back up a sort of decline in in pet birds being kept well slightly scarily actually i saw a stat around national pet ownership which said that birds were the third most popular pet on the increase now so that was slightly terrifying because i think it's very hard to meet their needs and really understand what they need and particularly for, for some of these you know 
very, very smart birds like parrots and yeah. also are very long lived. You know, they, they have all sorts of behavioral problems as pets and it's really not an easy pet. And as beautiful as they are, you know, I don't think that they should be in our houses. Mm. It comes back to this thing is it all about ownership. We think we own we own these animals and actually at the end of the day, you know, we coexist with them and we should treat them with a certain amount of respect rather than as a product. And so when you're making that decision, like, should I get a pet? I think we, we maybe see it as a one way. What can the pet give me? What am I getting from the pet? And I think we also need to ask that question, like, what life can I give this pet? Mm. You know, are we the right family to give this pet its best life? Yeah. Yeah. And if you're fascinated by birds, then maybe, you know, try and get outside more, get a bird feeder, you know, get some binoculars, try and engage with the wonder of biodiversity in birds that way than having one in the cage in your house. You absolutely can. Where we live at the mill in the summer, you know, I leave the sort of back doors open onto the deck and I've even got a little video clip because I was sat in my armchair reading and I caught a flicker of movement out of the corner of my eye. And we have a pair of blackbirds that nest in the garden that my daughters christened Pippi and Strawberry. And Strawberry, the female, was literally in the kitchen you know, pecking under the table and, uh, <laughs> you know, picking up all the crumbs on the floor. And I looked up and I went, hello. And the bird sort of looked at me and went, yeah, I'm just coming in. You, you know, there's nothing on the bird table out there. So I thought I'd come in here and help myself. And they honestly, they were, so, they're so docile now and they're so familiar with us. It's like absolutely beautiful relationship that, you know, they're, they're not afraid of us and, and we're living in alignment and yeah, there's definitely no cage involved. That's great. Cause that means you can catch them and eat them. <laughs> come the apocalypse come we're in danger of the most idyllic end to a podcast we've ever had i don't think we've ever ended with i had the back doors of the mill open while i was reading and a blackbird came and sat with me and we had a little chat yeah we can't move on from that can we no that's it that's perfect beautiful that has been superb jen justine absolute pleasure interesting that we have to tail this episode isn't it yes yeah, we stick a tail on it if this podcast were an animal, what sort of tail would it have? Oh, a very waggy one. <laughs> <laughs> a very happy dog that is wagging its tail so hard that its bum is also going from side to side. Do you think so? I mean, we deal with quite dark issues quite a lot. Is this a happy podcast? <laughs> I think, well, do you know, I was looking while we were talking at Jen's uh, website, Sustainable-ish, which I recommend to everyone because it's right where we're at as a podcast about you know, doing the things you can do and getting involved and the, the benefits of just doing something for your own health, whether you do something perfectly mm. and reduce your carbon footprint to zero, just getting involved. And I think, you know, this podcast is a perfect example. I would say maybe we didn't quite make a big enough show of the fact that we are all not against having pets and understand the I mean, you look at my liked posts on Instagram, you'll find that 60% of them are dogs pulling faces or ASMR videos of dogs eating watermelon. It's a thing I've got into recently. Yeah. Uh, the other 30% is people falling over in the street and walking into glass doors. Um, mm. And then 10% is an yeah. account I've fallen in love with called Cooking for Levi, which is like a Michelin-starred chef who cooks amazing meals for his three-year-old who is the cutest child in the history of human reproduction. <laughs> So, you know, in going into the debate and helping people become more conscientious and sustainable pet owners, we perhaps didn't make enough of a play of nobody saying don't have pets and nobody saying that we don't understand the immense or life-changing relationships that can happen mm. and the benefit for the planet of people who understand the love that you can have for an animal and what, what a relationship that can be. 
Mm. But I think the point is, it is a relationship. It's not an ownership. Yes. Then like this podcast where basically you own us. Do I? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and it's a relationship that has to be seen in the context of our bigger relationships. And I think, you know, that's the whole essence of, I think the thing we were trying to point at, wasn't it? Is like, you know, none of this stuff is without impact. And when you've got a large dog, which probably has a paw print, as Jem put it, mm. which is twice as big as your average family car, per year you know mm. that's that's a significant impact and shouldn't be dismissed when we look at the mix of things where we're trying to make a difference mm. so alligator i was gonna get you for christmas is probably off the list now i think yeah <laughs> shake things up at the mill wouldn't it <clears throat> yeah that's when i kicked my auction habit when i realized that when i found myself bidding on a stuffed alligator and i thought what yeah am I god doing? these auction why, sites why do i even want Bloody this nightmare <laughs> you wouldn't you wouldn't catch me doing anything like that mate I'm not a man waiting on a uh, signed Euro 96 Paul Gascoigne shirt any minute because he was bored on the internet for an hour. <laughs> I'll tell you what I've learned from that show. If you, there are listeners who are experts on topics and are funny and pleasant company, we don't need to do anything anymore. Yeah. So email in. <laughs> <laughs> Just, I mean, some of you fuckers must know something. So if you're listening and you have any skill set whatsoever, get off your arse and do our jobs for us because I don't want to have yeah. to do it anymore. Hey, I do all the work around here. Oh, I know you do. Yeah, I didn't say we don't want to do it anymore. You two remain absolutely steadfast in your commitment to making the world a better place. My view is I've tried it, and now I just need to do high-paying gigs so I can buy Euro 96 memorabilia online and look at videos of cute dogs. That's what I want. That's me now. Oh, and alcohol. The only thing I've stopped drinking are really this time of year, booze. God, God, it's tasty, isn't it? Anyway... Oh, talking of booze, um, I spoke yesterday to a, a brilliant distiller of rum, the Two Drifters Distillery, Ooh. and they uh, they are genuinely carbon negative. Is it sailed rum? Is it? Do they sail it over? Uh, they do a whole life cycle analysis. In fact, the guy who sets it up as a chemist who also does life cycle analysis on all product on products for other people as well is absolutely brilliant. If you're going to buy any rum this Christmas, Two Drifters rum is it? And do you drink it up on the roof? Uh, I don't know. Oh, I see what you did there. What? It's just a drifter's gag. Oh, yeah, exactly. On Up on the roof. Oof. Oh, dear. Oh. But I try and do music <laughs> stuff for you every now and again because I know you like sounds. <laughs> <laughs> what? Well, uh, on that note, I'm going to get back to the studio and try and finish the Quantum Pig album. Uh, okay, well, we're moving off music then, are we? Okay, fine. Oh, you absolute <laughs> bastard. <laughs> <laughs> Our email address is hello at johnandthefuturenauts.com. What's our Twitter handle, Ed? At J and the F. And if you want to find like-minded people in the real world, why not type in People Planet Pint, our official partner for J and the F listeners to get together in pubs, save the planet and drink beer. It's an absolute pleasure being with you both. Thank you for your company. Thank you to Jen and Justine, and thank you to everybody for listening. Thank you, as always, to Emma and to our new guest, Boots the Cat. Have a wonderful week, and we will see you next week. Do you want to say goodbye? Meow. Woof. <laughs>